astrology, astrologers, and reincarnation. The August 2018 edition of Ed Snow's wonderful astrology news service revealed the results of a survey he had conducted among members of the astrological organizations. It turns out that 68.5% of the 500 astrologers he surveyed accepted the idea of reincarnation, while only a tiny 12% disagreed with the idea. That so many of us practicing this craft believe in prior lifetimes came as a big surprise to me. Reincarnation is, of course, fundamental to evolutionary astrology, but while it is increasingly popular, evolutionary astrology is still a minority voice in the larger context of our profession. I would have imagined that far fewer astrologers were concerned with who they or their clients were in past lives but more than two-thirds of us do. I'll put my obvious cards on the table here first. Yippee, this is good news. I sincerely believe in reincarnation myself. At the risk of sounding arrogant, I'll even go so far as to say I feel like I know. I love astrology, and the more the practice of astrology is aligned with the truth of life, the happier I will be. It's a delicate area, though. Astrologers aren't Preachers, here are my less obvious cards. We astrologers have no business pushing our metaphysical beliefs on anyone. It is in the very DNA of our craft that we celebrate human individuality and human freedom. My own work is very much rooted in the idea of how the present birth chart develops logically out of unresolved issues from prior lifetimes. Still, unless a client has been very clear about personally accepting reincarnation, I always frame the past life parts of my readings in more flexible, less preachy terms. I, I make a little speech about ancestral past lives living on within us via genetics. And I actually believe that that's at least part of what we see in the chart. I usually add a line about how maybe that's just the way God made you. However we look at it, all of us were born with intrinsic natures. Unless the universe is completely pointless and random, there's a reason for our having those natures. And that reason had to come before you had your present chart. None of this proves reincarnation by any means, but these two ideas, past lives, and the idea that there is a reason that you have the chart you have, get along like peanut butter and jelly. Here are a few lines from the first chapter of my 2008 book, Yesterday's Sky, Astrology and Reincarnation. Two points, however, are objectively certain. A third one flows naturally from the first two. Number one, all who accept reincarnation agree that our present personalities and circumstances are rooted in our previous lives. Number two, all astrologers agree that our personalities and circumstances are reflected somehow in our birth charts. Logic draws us to a third point. Number three, if we accept both astrology and reincarnation, we are compelled to recognize that our present chart must reflect prior life dynamics, that hidden in our natal configurations are clues, however subtle, about who we were and what we were doing in previous lifetimes. If we accept both astrology 
and reincarnation, no other position is logically defensible. Now, again, I would never claim that any of this proves reincarnation. But with nearly seven out of every ten astrologers believing in past lives, it seems like it's time for evolutionary astrology to rule the profession. Now, I hate talking that way, though. I don't need people to think the way I do. I want them to think for themselves. But based on Ed Snow's survey, it looks like astrologers have some serious thinking to do. Anyone who accepts both astrology and reincarnation cannot long sustain the logic of putting a wall between those two beliefs. One more point before I move on. When I speak of evolutionary astrology, what I am referring to is simply the marriage of three disciplines, modern psychology, ancient reincarnational metaphysics, and astrology. I certainly do not intend to refer narrowly to the people who work in the style that I've been teaching all these years, nor the Jeffrey Wolf Green evolutionary astrology style, which is substantially different from my own. I can easily embrace the idea of Vedic evolutionary astrologers, or Hellenistic evolutionary astrologers, or Uranian, cosmobiological, or Renaissance evolutionary astrologers. In my mind, it's a big tent. Now, there is much that is appealing about the idea of reincarnation. Simply not dying has kind of a friendly ring to it, for starters. And then there's the idea that despite appearances, there is a kind of unerring justice in the world. That moron who cut you off in traffic, or that scoundrel who stole your true love, are going to have their days of reckoning. Lovely. Of course, you will have your day of reckoning, too. So reincarnation is an appealing idea. But so is the idea of the dawning of an age of world peace, or astrologers being lauded and paid, paid what they are worth, or, or artists not starving. Much that is appealing is still not true. What about reincarnation? Are there any compelling, objective reasons to believe in it? Obviously, it is a difficult thing to prove one way or the other. Ten years ago, when I was writing Yesterday's Sky, Astrology and Reincarnation, I realized that I was asking my readers to take a prodigious leap of faith, and that did not seem fair to them. So I began researching the research about the evidence for reincarnation and found there was quite a lot of rational support for the idea. With Ed Snow's striking survey results still fresh, it seems like a good time to reach out to anyone who is interested in astrology but has logical doubts about reincarnation. My aim is not to harangue anyone here, only to speak rationally and respectfully to questioning minds. To that end, I offer an audio version of the second chapter of Yesterday's Sky, entitled, Why Believe in Reincarnation. I hope you enjoy it and learn something from it. Thank you. Yesterday's Sky, Chapter 2, Why Believe in Reincarnation. We're a thousand celestial pigs to raise their joyous voices in the Alleluia Chorus. Wouldn't that be a day to remember? Well, yes, but none of us are holding our breath. 
Were all the politicians honest? Were the legal system always fair? Were oil as cheap as it was in 1957? The wish list goes on and on, all wonderful and desirable, but all unlikely. Reincarnation is, in some ways, that kind of idea. It sounds good, but that alone doesn't make it true. The good parts of coming back again are obvious. For starters, nobody really dies. There goes that worry. For seconds, you don't really need to get it totally right in this one lifetime. You've got time. For thirds, justice is always done. The kid who stole your bike will get his bike stolen someday, as he richly deserves. Immortality, a second chance, and ultimate fairness. It is an attractive package. And it gets even better. What about juxtaposing the starving kids in Africa with the flamboyant lifestyles of the conspicuously, frivolously wealthy? In the sweet by and by, each will be in the other one's shoes. There is elegant beauty and balance in the idea. Ditto for singing pigs. So, are there actually any good reasons to believe in reincarnation? Obviously, you have some openness to the idea of transmigration, or you would not have opened this book. You're not alone. In America, the reported percentage of people who believe in reincarnation varies between 25%, 35%. Yankelovich Partners, CNN, Gallup, Lutz Research, etc. The numbers look even better in my own astrological practice, which has attracted a widely varied clientele. When I sit with someone for the first time, I always ask if it's all right if I use past life language. Only twice has anyone demurred. One time I was a professor at Catholic University in Washington. He came back 10 years later and said, okay, tell me about my past lives. I am always ready to go with alternative interpretations. If I run into someone who really doesn't want to hear about prior lifetimes, I can translate the karmic information easily into the language of that's how God made you or that's how your ancestral DNA patterns may manifest in your present character. Those perspectives are all ready to roll, but so far basically there are no takers. People generally like hearing about past lives, in my experience. Who comes to me for an astrological consultation? Well, clearly it's not a random sample of humanity. Getting a reading is a voluntary behavior, and it implies some self-selection. Many people imagine that I see mostly mystical vegetarian sympathizers and tree-huggers, such as myself. Uh, this isn't actually true at all. Remember, the, the most egregious example of public astrological enthusiasm in the past couple of generations was Ronald Reagan. Astrology is funny that way. It cuts across the obvious lines of the culture wars. There are very few common denominators among my clients other than an open mind. Collectively, we are taught not to believe in astrology. So people who appear at my door are independent thinkers. There are also people who are living examined lives who would want an astrological reading if they weren't interested in self-knowledge. So statistically, maybe a third of Americans are open to reincarnation. 
close to 100% of the people who come to me uh, have their, to have their charts read are open to the idea. Why are my numbers higher than the Gallup poll? My conclusion is that the ones out there watching television, ignoring life's persistent questions, are less likely to have reincarnation cross their minds. Nobody ever urged them to consider it. If you are an astrologer, and you're afraid that you will be too out there if you start talking about past lives with your clients, I don't think you need to worry. The kinds of people who want consultations tend to love it. If my own experience is any indicator, you will gain far more clientele than you will lose. But of course, none of this makes reincarnation true. Our initial question still remains, why should we believe in it? Are there any rational reasons beyond the attractiveness and relative popularity of the philosophy? The evidence. Can we prove or disprove the reality of reincarnation? The question is slippery. No is a tempting response, but it's too glib. Maybe we don't need to be quite so dogmatic about it. Proof is an ambiguous word. For the fundamental laws of science, proof basically means that the principle works all the time and can always be demonstrated. Energy is always equal to mass times the speed of light squared, period. That principle has never failed a test. I doubt we can ever prove reincarnation that way. Most science is fuzzier than that. We all know how to take it with a grain of salt when we learn that there is a 35% chance of rain on Thursday. Meteorology is a science, but one for gamblers. Ditto for economics and quantum mechanics. Similarly, proof in a court of law is often framed as knowing something beyond a reasonable shadow of doubt. Reincarnation can pass those kinds of tests. I feel that it already has, as uh, we will be briefly exploring here. My aim in this chapter is not to an attempt an exhaustive overview of this fertile and vibrant field of research. That would be a different book than the one I'm writing. In fact, it would take a library. Follow up on the upcoming references for those kinds of leads if you're interested. In these pages, I want to hit a few of the high points in terms of the emerging data in support of the objective reality of reincarnation. Let's start off with a quote uh, which Raphael Nasser, editor of Under One Sky, sent me a few years ago. Here's the quote, then I'll tell you who it's by. At the time of writing, there are three claims in the ESP field, extrasensory perception, which in my opinion deserve serious study. Number one, that by thought alone, humans can barely affect random number generators in computers, barely is in parentheses. Number two, that people under mild sensory deprivation can receive thoughts or images projected at them. And number three, that young children sometimes report the details of a previous life, which upon checking turns out to be accurate and which they could not have known about in any other way than reincarnation. It's the end of the quote. Believe it or not, these are the words of the late archdruid of 20th century science, Carl Sagan, 
They appear in his book, The Demon Haunted World. He was almost certainly referencing research done by Dr. Ian Stevenson. Canadian by birth, Dr. Ian Stevenson was a psychiatrist working primarily at the University of Virginia. His primary interest was the study of young children who typically between the ages of two and four began talking about prior lifetimes. Tellingly, such children had usually forgotten about their prior lives by the time they reached the ages of seven or eight. Dr. Stevenson traveled all over the world in search of these mysterious stories. He documented them meticulously. By the time he passed away in 2007, he had amassed a couple thousand of these tales. He published extensively. His best-known work is 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation, published in 1966, with an expanded second edition in 1974. His team, under Dr. Jim Tucker, has continued the work. Here's an example of the kind of tales he encountered and recorded. While in Kornayel, Lebanon, in 1964, researching another case, Ian Stevenson heard a rumor of a local boy who seemed to be reporting a prior life. The boy, Imad Elawar, before he was even two years old, had begun talking about a lifetime in Kribi, a village 25 miles away, in which he had been part of the Buz Hamzi family. He made flattering references to a woman named Jamil, comparing her favorably to his present mother. All in all, the boy made 57 statements, which Stevenson recorded. When the researcher got to the village, which Imad Elawar had never visited, he was able to verify that one Ibrahim Bohamzi had died there of tuberculosis nine years earlier. He had had a lover named Jamil. These two facts, plus 49 other statements made by the child, were verifiable. Imad even knew Ibrahim Bohamzi's, pardon me, Bohamzi's last words. He could identify family members. Once on a walk with his grandmother, when he was four, young Imad had run up to a stranger on the street and hugged him, startling the man. Imad had claimed that the young man had been his neighbor. Turns out the stranger was from Kribi and, in fact, had been Ibrahim Bohamzi's neighbor. How can we explain this? Now, here's another one. A child named William was born with a defect in his main pulmonary artery. At age three, it became apparent that he had had an inexplicable emotional connection with his deceased grandfather, whom he had never met, a New York City police officer killed in the line of duty by a bullet passing through his main pulmonary artery. Young William, when threatened with a spanking by his mother, told her that when he had been her father, he had never hit her. He even knew the names of the pets his mother had owned as a child. It seems that he had actually been his own grandfather. These are just two stories. 
it would be easy to dismiss them with a shrug of the shoulders, except that there are 2,000 more of them to go, all carefully documented. Ian Stevenson himself never framed them as a proof of reincarnation. He was too much of a scientist for that. He called them suggestive of reincarnation. Well, fair enough. Dr. Helen Wambach, a spontaneous recognition of a specific book that had belonged to her in a prior lifetime triggered a lifelong fascination with past lives for Dr. Helen Wambach. She was a psychologist and a teacher working with hypnotic techniques, using them to bring people back into touch with their own prior life memories. Reliving Past Lives, one of her books, and Life Before Life, both in 1978, and the new edition, Reliving Past Lives, The Evidence Under Hypnosis from 1984, detail her work, which was meticulous and scholarly. Over a period of 10 years, she hypnotically regressed 1,088 people and carefully recorded their remembered stories of previous incarnations. Generally, this work was conducted in the context of small, day-long workshops with a dozen or so participants. Post-session, they were all encouraged to fill out forms with the same set of standard questions. What were you eating and with what utensils? What was your gender? What were you wearing? Less than 1% of these kinds of factual daily life recollections proved inconsistent with the historical record. Nobody drove to the Crusades in a 1958 Chevy or lost their iPod overboard on the Mayflower. Quite wonderfully, not a single one of Wambach's subjects recalled being anyone famous. There were no Cleopatras or representatives of the Twelve Apostles. Nobody had saved the world. 10% recalled lifetimes in which there were members of the upper class, while between 20% and 35% were middle class, and 60 to 77% were near poverty or actually in it. The definitions of these sociological terms are, of course, a bit fuzzy and variable over time, but impressionistically, the distribution has the feeling of reality. The magic is in the specificity of the details that Wambach uncovered. For example, five subjects recalled living migratory lives in tents in Central Asia between three and 4,000 years ago. Strangely, they recalled themselves as blonde and light-skinned, leading each one of them to dismiss their own memories as incorrect. They knew, in quotation marks, that no blondes had lived there. And yet, as a matter of historical fact, Caucasians had migrated to that region during that period. Thus, these prior life memories existed independently of the beliefs and assumptions of those who were recalling them. Details of the styles of clothing being worn often came up with Wambach subjects. Constantly and consistently, these were verified as accurate, which is quite impressive given the ever-evolving nature of clothing styles. Quick, quick, what were the upper classes wearing in Egypt in 1000 BC? I mean, the answer actually is a half or full-length white cotton robe. Under hypnosis, one of Helen Wambach's subjects knew that. How? These kinds of results are profoundly affecting to me. 
Altogether, 62% of Wambach's 1,088 subjects died of illness and old age. 18% died in war or violence. 20% died accidentally. A reasonable distribution? It seems so to me. Perhaps the most compelling of Dr. Helen Wambach's findings is that after more than a thousand subjects and 10 years of time, when she totaled up the results, 50.6% of the remembered lifetimes were male and 49.4% were female, just about what one would expect in reality. As with Ian Stevenson and his successors, with Helen Wambach's work, one can dismiss individual stories as anecdotal. Maybe a friend of yours swears he saw the Sasquatch crossing the road a quarter of a mile ahead at dusk last night. He'd only had one beer or maybe it was two. What, what do you think? You trust your friend, but your opinion is colored by reason and experience. You shrug your shoulders. Who knows? Maybe it was a dog. Maybe it was a guy in a gorilla suit. But what if a thousand of your friends saw Sasquatch independently? What do you think then? Reading the complete work of Stevenson and Wambach has that kind of impact. I've only introduced them here. If your faith in reincarnation could use a little encouragement and support, spend some time with their books. The accumulated evidence will impress you. Peter Ramstar. Some truly fascinating hypnotic regression work has come out of Sydney, Australia under the guidance of psychologist Peter Ramster. As with the other researchers whose work I am mentioning in this chapter, my aim here is only to give you a taste. If you're interested in learning more, read his book, In Search of Lives Past, or marvel at his video, In Another Life. One of Peter Ramster's subjects was a woman named Gwen McDonald, who had never been outside of Australia. Like Ramster, she was initially skeptical about the whole idea of reincarnation, but she consented to the hypnotic regression. During it, she recalled a lifetime in Somerset, England in the 18th century. Taken there in the present day, she was able to navigate around the area, even knowing in which direction her former village lay. She described some stepping stones and local people confirmed that the stones had been removed only 40 years earlier. She knew the names of villages whose names had fallen out of use two centuries earlier. She led the team to a house she remembered, which had long since been converted into a shed for chickens. When they cleaned the floor of the shed, they found a stone, a stone that Gwen MacDonald had sketched back in Sydney before leaving Australia. Ramster's work is full of anecdotes such as this one. As with Ian Stevenson and Helen Wambach, their persuasiveness is leveraged by their sheer numbers. Explanations such as Gwen MacDonald is psychic and doesn't know it or even it's a hoax, become harder to sustain in the face of the sheer onslaught of multitudinous mysterious facts, facts which make perfect sense if we simply assume that reincarnation is a reality. Arthur Guirdham, English psychiatrist Arthur Guirdham, was presented with a Mrs. Smith, in quotation marks, who had been suffering from nightmares about being a peasant girl 
burned at the stake during the time of the Catholic persecution of the Cathars in southern France. Amazingly, as a schoolgirl, she had actually written verses in Languedoc, the nearly forgotten language the Cathars spoke. In 1944, she wrote out from memory what she claimed to be songs of the period. Copies of these songs were only discovered in library archives 23 years later. She could describe buildings of the period in detail. She knew the jewelry of the time. Fascinatingly, Arthur Guerdham had had similar Cathar nightmares himself since his youth. Mrs. Smith claimed that he had been a priest named Roger de Glissol, whom she had known in that lifetime. Impressed by the accuracy of the rest of her dreams and recollections, Dr. Guerdon began doing some academic research to see if he could recover any relevant historical records. Sure enough, there actually was a Roger de Grassol murdered in Toulouse in 1242 AD. The karma of their shared prior life connection had ripened. The priest had turned into a psychiatrist. They met again. Once more, this is just a brief taste. If you're interested, read Arthur Wertham's book, The Cathars and Reincarnation. Brian L. Weiss. Psychiatrist Brian L. Weiss's 1988 book, Many Lives, Many Masters, became a major bestseller. Up until then, his career had been impressive, if rather conventional. Phi Beta Kappa at Columbia, Yale Medical School, University of Miami, where he became an associate professor of psychiatry and head of the psychopharmacology division, as well as chief of psychiatry at a major Florida hospital. In writing about reincarnation, Weiss, of course, took a monumental professional risk. Describing it, he delightfully quotes his old grandfather, what the hell, what the hell? <laughs> You gotta love the guy. The trigger for this perilous leap of faith was the arrival in Weiss's office of a 27-year-old woman, Catherine, in quotation marks, in 1980. She presented with anxiety and panic attacks, which only worsened during the course of 18 months of conventional psychotherapy. She was not interested in being drugged. She persisted in verbal therapy. In 1982, Catherine visited a museum in Chicago where there was a guided tour of some ancient Egyptian artifacts. To her surprise, she found herself correcting the tour guide on some details and being proven right. This tale piqued Dr. Weiss's curiosity, so he decided to try hypnosis on Catherine. His view, still conditioned by conventional psychology, was that the origin of Catherine's anxieties presumably lay in her childhood. Weiss took her back in trance, and sure enough, they encountered early childhood sexual abuse. Sad, but no surprise. But her symptoms remained as bad as ever. Still baffled, in a subsequent session, Weiss unwittingly crossed the Rubicon. He told Catherine simply to go back to the time from which your symptoms arise. Here's what she said. I see white steps leading up to a building, a big white building with pillars open in front. I am wearing a long dress. 
a sack made of rough material. My hair is braided, long blonde hair. Still under hypnosis, Weiss asked her what her name was and what year it was. Aronda, I am 18. There are baskets. You carry the baskets on your shoulders. The year is 1863 BC. I will leave the rest of this fabulous story to Brian Weiss. He tells it well in Many Lives, Many Masters, and he has gone on to write a lot more in the field over the years. The beauty of his work to me lies in watching the healing impact of Catherine unraveling her own karmic story. In the course of it, we learn that she had lived 86 prior lifetimes. Four years after the end of their therapeutic relationship, Catherine remained free of symptoms of anxiety, panic, and depression, which had driven her into Dr. Weiss's office in the first place. Weiss writes, Since Catherine, I have done detailed regressions to multiple past lives in more than a dozen patients. None of these patients was psychotic, hallucinating, or experiencing multiple personalities. All improved dramatically. Many Lives, Many Masters is just one story. From an evidentiary perspective, it is not as compelling as the work of the other researchers we have mentioned. One could dismiss it as Catherine's fantasy, but in the spirit of Weiss's work, we see something closer to the actual work of evolutionary astrology, as we'll be exploring later in this volume. Our aim, like that of Brian Weiss, is healing. Edgar Casey. No one was more surprised than Edgar Casey himself when he woke up from a trance in 1923 and was told that he had diagnosed the origins of someone's present physical ailments as the result of experience in a prior lifetime. Casey, who lived from 1877 until 1945, was a devout Southern Christian. He had read the Bible cover to cover once for each year of his life. For 20 years, he had been going into trance and offering diagnoses and cures for people's illnesses. He gave about 14,000 readings altogether, only 2,500 of which were explicitly about prior lifetimes. I remember finding a copy of Edgar Cayce's biography, There is a River, by Thomas Sugru, in my parents' bookcase when I was 12 years old. Even at that hormonally addled age, I, I valued that book even above the, above the National Geographics with their photos of naked Africans, you know. Reading about Edgar Cayce changed the course of my life. It is the foundation of half of my adult beliefs and understandings. I have been fortunate enough to experience many honors and dignities in this lifetime, but among the greatest of them was being invited to speak twice at the Association for Research and Enlightenment in Virginia Beach, Virginia, which Edgar Cayce founded and where his work is enshrined. Unlike the work of Wambacher Stevenson, Edgar Cayce made no attempt to be scientific. His aim was purely one of service. Still, meticulous records were kept of his readings, 
and like that of Wambacher Stevenson, it is most impressive when taken as a body of work. The complete archives are available for perusal at the ARE Library in Virginia, and much of it is available in a multitude of books that have appeared about Edgar Cayce over the, over the years. Here is one example taken from the book Edgar Cayce on Reincarnation by Noel Langley. A psychologist by the name of Calvin Mortimer came to Casey for a reading during the time between the two world wars. Quoting from the text of the session, Before this, the entity was in the land of the present nativity, during the period just following the American Revolution, among the soldiery of the British, acting in the American land in what would be termed the intelligence service, not as a spy, but rather one of those who mapped and laid out the plans for the campaigns by Howe and Clinton. However, the entity remained in the American soil after the hostilities ended, not as one dead, but as one making for the cooperation between the peoples of the entity's native land and those of the land of adoption. Then, in the name Warren, the entity gained by successfully establishing those relationships. Hence, in the present, we will find diplomatic relationships, the exchange of ideas, and plans of the various nations becoming of interest to the entity. So that's the text from Casey's reading for this man. Now, when World War II broke out, Mortimer was too old for active combat duty, so he joined the Coast Guard but was quickly transferred to the Domestic Intelligence Service. There he came to work closely with the Office of Strategic Services, the predecessor of the CIA. By the end of the war, he was in charge of a school for spies, training men to drop behind enemy lines on the selfsame spot in Long Island where he had once mapped and laid out the plans for the campaigns of Howe and Clinton in the War of Independence. Famously, you can't make this stuff up, you know. Over and over again in Casey's readings, we see these kinds of precognitions of future developments in people's lives based upon the repetition of old past life patterns. There are the geographical and professional associations, as we observe with Calvin Mortimer, but there are also relationships, physical illnesses, talents, Throughout Edgar Cayce's work, there is a sense of strong moral philosophy. A better way to phrase it might be a sense of the natural laws of cause, effect, and consequence. Karma, in other words. For example, Cayce did a reading for a woman struggling with alcoholism and sexual compulsivity in her present life. He related it to a prior life during a wildly libertine period in French history, one in which she was judgmental and puritanical, condemning others for their contamination and finally withdrawing into a convent. In trance, Casey said to her, Ye condemn those whose activities were in direct disobedience to the law. But he who is weak in the flesh, is his error the greater? For one should know that the condemning of others is already a condemning of the self, which is the greater sin. Edgar Cayce, in trance, was more than a psychic. He was a powerful spiritual teacher. I owe him a great debt.
Roger J. Walter, Patricia Walsh, and Deep Memory Process. When it comes to healing and release, there are tremendous advantages to the active reality of recalling one's own prior lifetimes. Alternatively, we can sit with a psychic or an evolutionary astrologer and hear about a prior incarnation, but then maybe we aren't so sure. Maybe we don't know what to make of it, but when the memory comes roaring straight up out of your own unconscious, there is a certain undeniable immediacy to the experience. That can occur through meditation or dreams. But hypnotic regression is the classic gateway into that kind of direct experience. We have seen examples of that process already, most notably with Helen Wambach. One of its pioneers is an Englishman, Roger J. Wolger. Now, Wolger trained at the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich after studying at Oxford. His book, Other Lives, Other Selves, is generally recognized as one of the seminal works in the field of past life regression. Back before he was famous, Roger Wolger came to North Carolina to offer a weekend workshop, which I eagerly attended. My own first book, The Inner Sky, had just come out. Through a mutual friend, Roger and I were introduced. We had lunch. He was as eager to pick my brain about the mysteries of how to get published as I was to pick his about the mysteries of reincarnation. Synchronistically, our fates seemed to be linked. Within a short while, he had a contract with the same publisher as I did, Bantam Books. And even though I had been drawn to reincarnation ever since I had been a child reading Edgar Cayce, Roger's presentations that weekend really inspired me to see the therapeutic possibilities inherent in past life recall and encouraged me to pursue its astrological dimensions. Like the work of Brian Weiss, Roger Walger's work, which he calls Deep Memory Process, has relatively little value in terms of convincing skeptics. The work is for open-minded people who want to dive into their own psyches and experience their own prior lives directly. It is not about proving reincarnation at all, except perhaps subjectively. In fact, Walter distances himself from any such concerns. In his own words from other lives, other selves, quote, past life therapy as a rule does not set out to prove anything. Proof or disproof of reincarnation is strictly the province of parapsychology and research. Be this as it may, any concern with explanation must remain secondary to the immediate task of the therapist, which is to help his or her clients to obtain relief from and to understand troublesome symptoms and behavior patterns over which they have no control. End of quote. Roger Wolger's aims are so like my own that it is no surprise at all that our journeys wove together many years ago. The rest should be no surprise either. Several years ago, while teaching an astrology workshop in Hartford, Connecticut, I encountered a bright, enthusiastic woman who said she'd been working with Roger. Her name was Patricia Walsh. She had studied the principles of evolutionary astrology with my own friend and writing partner, Jeffrey Wolf Green, back then, and she was connecting Jeff's past life work very effectively with people's own recovery covered memories from the hypnotic work that Roger Wolger had pioneered. In other words, Patricia Walsh was proving that trance work and evolutionary astrology were coming up with the same results. Her work is meticulous and very concrete. 
case studies are compared with the parallels between the two systems leaping out dramatically. Patricia will have a book out soon. For now, I would draw your attention to her article, Astrological Observations from Past Life Therapy. It appeared in International Astrologer, the Journal of the International Society for Astrological Research, in their Leo issue, 2006, of volume 36, number 3. I find the work that Roger and Patricia Walsh are doing particularly exciting for two reasons. First, and more importantly, there is a tremendous potential for healing synergy between hypnotic regression and evolutionary astrology. A regression in which a person actually has a direct experience of a prior life trauma can be tremendously cathartic, adding a dimensionality and a punch to the more abstract astrological analysis. But turning it around, the astrological analysis can direct a person's attention to the most charged and most relevant unresolved karmic issues. In other words, if you were the captain of a slave ship or one of its passengers in a prior life, you might vastly prefer to recall lifetimes as a French pastry chef. Astrology strategically directs the attention in the most therapeutic direction while deep memory process can better trigger highly specific memories, plus release, confidence in the reality of the experience, and healing. The second reason I am so excited about this coming together of deep memory process and evolutionary astrology is that the combination is just so incredibly convincing. If Joe tells you that he saw a UFO around sunset last night over the reservoir, you're interested, but you're not so sure. If an hour later, Anne, who has never even met Joe, tells you the same thing, you're far more compelled to believe. Seeing the karmic story and astrological symbols than hearing it come independently out of someone's mouth can give pause to the most dire skeptic. Roger Walger himself, in a private communication, says, what I have seen of the application of evolutionary astrology illuminates more of what I understand to be the inherited psychological dynamics of past lives than anything else I have come across. So Roger, Patricia, and I have talked about sponsoring a conference in which these various fields are brought together. So far, we are all too busy to make it happen, but let's hope. Many avenues. Well, as you can see from the foregoing pages, there are many ways people might encounter information about their prior lifetimes. Like Calvin Mortimer, we might sit with a psychic such as Edgar Cayce and simply have the story given to us. Like Brian Weiss's clients, participants in deep memory process therapies, or Helen Wambach's subjects, we might employ hypnotic regression and with the help of a guide, discover the tale ourselves. Like our Arthur Gordham's Mrs. Smith, the images might come to us in dreams or even by direct recollection. Many, especially the very young, just seem to know, as evidenced in Ian Stevenson's studies. Evolutionary astrology is taking its place among these other methods. In common with the others, it has certain advantages and certain disadvantages. Positively, its techniques are quite objective and replicable. 
They are not so subject to the impacts of people's wishes and fears, nor so vulnerable to confusions created by forgotten memories, memories, for example, of movies we saw when we were three years old, which can be honestly mistaken for prior life images. Well, negatively, evolutionary astrology provides only symbols and metaphors. It will not tell you that you work for Generals Howe and Clinton on Long Island in the War of Independence. It won't send you cleaning up the floor of a chicken coop in Somerset, England, looking for a certain particular etched stone. As we will see, if healing and release are our primary aims, as they are for Brian Rice or Roger Wolger, then the literal past life facts are less important than the emotions that are locked up in them, emotions which can be accessed just as effectively through metaphors as through literal, literal facts. And there is ultimately no metaphorical system so powerful and so primal as that of astrology. The Toku of Saraha. In Tibet, before the Chinese annexation, the monastery of Tse Choling had lost its abbot. In the customs of Buddhism, the solution was not simply to choose a successor, but rather to simply await the late abbot's reincarnation. Meanwhile, a boy took birth not far away and soon began to speak of a monastery on a hill where he had lived as a monk. The choir master of Tse Choling chanced to hear rumors of this boy and arranged to pay him an informal visit. The boy was by then three or four years old, the typical age of Ian Stevenson's subjects as they began speaking of prior lifetimes. Following Tibetan custom, the choir master carried a bag full of objects, some of which had belonged to the deceased abbot and some of which had not. The objects were spread out before the child, who was casually invited to choose some for his own. Immediately, he picked out a damaged bell, favoring it over another unflawed bell. Why do you want that old thing when there is a much better one? asked the choir master. Won't you have the nice new one? No, I would rather have my old bell, responded the boy. How do you know this is your bell? Because one day it fell down and got chipped at the rim, responded the boy, pointing out where a piece of metal was missing from the inner rim. This account is taken from the wonderful book, The Way of the White Clouds, by Lama Angarika Govinda. He goes on to write, Every single object that had belonged to the former abbot was immediately recognized by the boy, who firmly rejected all other things, though many of them were identical in shape. Thus did the monastery of Tse Choling recover its rightful abbot. Tibetan Buddhism. 1997 was a good year for bringing the reality of Tibetan society and religion to the attention of Westerners. Two films came out that year, Seven Years in Tibet and Kundun. Both explored, among other things, the life and times of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. 
As a child, he too, like the Tolku of Saraha, had proven himself the reincarnation of his predecessor through the device of recognizing certain objects which he had possessed in his previous incarnation. The word Tolku, by the way, uh, simply refers to the rebirth of a recognized spiritual figure from the past. Now, in a culture which assumes reincarnation, such as traditional Tibet, these kinds of events are relatively commonplace, and the recognition of previous possessions is not the only way that the certainty of identification across the abyss of death and rebirth is demonstrated, as we will now see. Perhaps the highest being to reincarnate successively within the sphere of Tibetan spirituality is called the Karmapa. The 16th Karmapa died in the United States in November 1981 after a long bout with cancer. His faithful attendant, Akang Rinpoche, had asked him for only one thing, one of the Karmapa's teeth, to be given to Akang after the Karmapa had died and been cremated. Somehow in the general chaos around the 16th Karmapa's passing in faraway America, the tooth had never gotten to Akang Rinpoche. He had been too distraught by his master's passing to attend the cremation where he might have asked for it. A few years later, Akang Rinpoche was in the party of lamas who set out to search for the Karmapa's reincarnation. The tale is very complex unfolding at the Byzantine intersection of Tibetan and Chinese politics. If you are interested, I would recommend the book The Dance of Seventeen Lives by Mick Brown. The short version of the story is that basically the 16th Karmapa, following a common Tibetan tradition, had written a letter just before his death detailing where he intended to take his next birth, naming a village the parents, and so forth. It took a while for that letter to surface, which created considerable confusion. In the end, Akang Rinpoche and a band of monks followed the instructions in the letter, and at the end of the trail, they encountered a boy named Apu Gaga, who had been born on June 26, 1985. In the words of Akang Rinpoche, so when I first saw Karmapa, I said to him, before you died, you promised me something, so where is it? Akang Rinpoche goes on to say that the young boy had a small carpet, and under the carpet there was one of his milk teeth, and he gave it to me. So that solved the problem. The 17th Karmapa had been born. As I mentioned previously, for compelling, rational evidence of reincarnation, the broad samples, rigorous methodology, and statistical analysis of researchers such as Ian Stevenson and Helen Wambach are so far unparalleled. For an understanding of the therapeutic and healing applications of the work, I would look to Roger Wolter, Patricia Walsh, Brian Weiss, and their colleagues and contemporaries. But for whatever real understanding that I at least have of the larger logic of the long-term evolution of our beings, I can only thank the lineage of Buddhist teachers who have so kindly and generously shared their understanding with all those who care to hear it. Personal experience. 
Ian Stevenson found more kids who remembered previous lifetimes in societies that were collectively open to the idea of reincarnation, such as India, than he did in societies where there was no widespread belief in reincarnation, such as the United States or Western Europe. Intuitively, it is easy to understand why that would be so. A child from West Virginia who starts, in quotes, babbling nonsense about having been a monk in a Himalayan monastery is not going to get much positive reinforcement for continuing to insist upon it. Still, as we saw earlier, between 20% and 35% of Americans actually believe in reincarnation despite the common impression that it is an exotic or foreign notion. I'm not sure what the corresponding figures would be in Europe, Latin America, or elsewhere in the Judeo-Christian world, perhaps not so different. Where do all these people get their belief in reincarnation? Going out on a limb, where do you get your own belief, however tentative it might be? Uh, my evidence being that you're reading this book, listening to this talk. There's nothing remotely objective or scientific here in what I'm about to say, but if you get a few open-minded folks relaxing around a table talking about their past life impressions, you quickly strike a motherload of intriguing stories. That's been my experience. Most of these stories take the form of intuitive impressions of prior lifetimes, typically based on a felt affinity with certain lands or certain times in history. For example, somebody might say, I have always felt that I was a nun in a convent in France, or that I have always known that Ryan and I were among the Knights Templar. Going a little further, often there are little miracles that reinforce the images details known or sensed, amazing coincidences. For one personal example, when I was a young man, I went backpacking in Europe for a few months with my partner. In the deserted ruins of Pompeii, on a gray November day, we encountered a guard. With his eye on my blonde girlfriend, he told me with a wink that I, as a man, should not miss the fine murals in the ruins of the old brothel there in Pompeii. Unfortunately, said he, women were not allowed in there due to the stimulating nature of the art, but that I shouldn't worry a moment because he would protect my girlfriend for me while I was gone. Now, even at that tender age, I quickly saw through his deception. But the weird thing, was, as, was that as soon as he launched into giving me directions to the brothel, I finished his sentence for him. I knew where the brothel was in ancient Pompeii. Now, years later, looking through a book of color plates from mosaics all over the world, I came upon one of a mildly erotic nature, and I immediately knew it was from that same Pompeian brothel, referring its plate number to the index, my identification was confirmed. Now, given the evolutionary nature and purpose of life, I like this story of mine a lot. Had I remembered, in quotes, that I had been Jesus Christ's meditation teacher, I pray I would have been suspicious of myself. But knowing that I had enjoyed the pleasures of the local brothel a couple of thousand years ago, has the ring of truth to it. Now, I have done nothing of that nature in this lifetime, nor do I find the notion attractive. Perhaps I got it out of my system back then. The point is, I was less evolved then. 
That's what it's all about. Somehow, too, I know in my bones that while I once lived in Pompeii, that it was basically a happy lifetime. I am quite sure I was gone from that body before the famous unpleasantness, you know, for which that city is best known. My point with indulging myself in this personal story is not to prove anything in particular or to make any claims about myself. My point is that I confidently believe that there are several billion such stories floating around in the world. All that stands between us and them is a collective paradigm of official disbelief and reincarnation, a paradigm which I believe is collapsing before our eyes. History. Most of us in the Western world have been conditioned to consider reincarnation as an Eastern belief. And certainly it would be impossible to contemplate Buddhism or Hinduism without prior and future lives. Earlier we saw the practical relevance of reincarnation to Tibetan Buddhist culture. In the roots of Hinduism, Krishna himself in the Bhagavad Gita says, as a man throweth away old garments and putteth on new, even so the dweller in the body, having quitted its old mortal frames, entereth into others which are new. Less commonly known is that the Celts held a belief in reincarnation as well. Looking around the faces I see attending my classes and the conferences where I'm invited to speak, I think it is fair to say we're talking about the distant grandmothers and grandfathers of an awful lot of modern astrologers. A common historical error is the belief that the Celts were basically British and Irish. While they did make their last stand against the Romans there, Celts were once spread out over much of Europe, and thus are the ancestors to a great many of us who hold the lamp of modern astrology in the West. Of that nation, the Celtic nation, Julius Caesar himself wrote, they wish to inculcate this as one of their leading tenets, that souls do not become extinct, but pass after death from one body to another. History is, of course, written by the victors, and when the Celtic kingdoms fell before the Romans and their druids were put to death, the loss of spiritual treasure to the human race as a whole was incalculable. The tragedy was multiplied by the fact that the Celtic people kept no written records of their beliefs. The culture was an oral one based on memorization and mentoring. That loss is particularly acute to those of us with Northern European blood who have had our, our root spirituality buried beneath layers of foreign Middle Eastern and Mediterranean philosophy, the Judeo-Christian tradition, in other words, with its overlay of Greco-Roman philosophy and logic. Now, nominally, reincarnation is not a Jewish or Christian belief, and yet peppered throughout the scriptures are many clear references to it. Try these passages from Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, in the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, quoting, And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He replied, Elijah does come and he is to restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. 
Now, Elijah was a prophet in the 9th century BC. He lived 800 years before Jesus spoke these words. Now, in the Old Testament book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we read these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. The book of Malachi is hard to date accurately, but internal clues put it no earlier than about 515 BC and no later than 445 BC, at least a couple of centuries after Elijah had lived and died. Clearly the prophecy here is for the reincarnation of Elijah. And much later, Jesus himself recognizes Elijah's tolku, we might as well say, in the form of John the Baptist. The unparalleled giant of a poet and scholar, Robert Graves, pulled no punches on this matter. In his words, quote, No honest theologian therefore can deny that his acceptance of Jesus as Christ logically binds every Christian to a belief in reincarnation, in Elias's case at least. Now, Elias and Elijah are equivalent. So what's going on here? What happened to reincarnation in the West? It is clearly in the Bible, and yet Bible-thumping fundamentalists who hold the belief that everything in the Bible is the literal word of God tend to view reincarnation as a blasphemous idea. How did that happen? To condemn reincarnation, they have to ignore some rather straightforward biblical passages, as we just saw. In the words of Brian Weiss, quote, in A.D. 325, the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, along with his mother Helena, had deleted references to reincarnation contained in the New Testament. The Second Council of Constantinople, meeting in A.D. 553, confirmed this action and declared the concept of reincarnation a heresy. End of quote. That's from Brian Weiss. That is one view. Although the balanced academic perspective is murkier, Quoting Roger Walter, Contemporary Christian theologians don't seem to be able to agree, despite mountains of scholarship, on whether early Christianity accepted the doctrine of reincarnation or not. Leslie Weatherhead maintains that reincarnation was accepted by the early church for the first 500 years of its existence. Head and Cranston provide text to support him. John Hick, on the other hand, claims this view to be totally erroneous and misleading, saying reincarnation was taught within the Gnostic movement from within the church, but that it early distinguished itself and was treated as a dangerous foe. Again, that's all a quote from Roger Wolger. At the risk of diverging too far afield, I do know that some of the disagreement over reincarnation's role in early Christianity stems from the intertwining of two ideas past lives, and the pre-existence of the soul. The latter is simply the theological idea that all souls were created by God at the beginning of time versus print-on-demand souls, so to speak, which God would create at the moment of conception or the moment of birth. This was a hot debate a millennium and a half ago. You can have pre-existent souls that simply wait their turn for their single shot at incarnation, or pre-existent souls that reincarnate over and over again. Either way, those souls have pasts 
What you can't have are fresh, made-to-order souls with a history of prior incarnations. The pre-existence issue was a contentious one in early Christianity. It seems that by the time the language and texts age for a couple of millennia, then go through various translations, honorable scholars can read reincarnation into pre-existence or out of it. So it is a model. But clearly, it is impossible to make sense of certain passages in the Bible without thinking literally of reincarnation as we have demonstrated. The Gnostics who were so intimately bound up in the early history of Christian thinking most definitely believed in it. Though subject to debate, there is also good evidence that Plato and Pythagoras assumed reincarnation. As we have seen up north in the so-called barbarous forests of the Celts, reincarnation was simply a fact of life. If not universal, it at least seems to pop up everywhere, in other words. The notion that prior lifetimes are an Eastern concept is simply too restrictive. The simple fact is that belief in reincarnation was once very widespread, but only survived as a mainstream belief into modern times in the East. Other cultures. I had the pleasure of speaking in Australia recently. My sponsors there, Lisa Jones and Cheryl Cooper, very kindly arranged a surprise for me. Just before I was to begin my five-day presentation, an Aboriginal man stepped out of the wings. He arrived in a loincloth, his body caked ceremonially in mud patterns, ready to tell us stories and play his didgeridoo. He wove a spell on us all. Then he was kind enough to remain and listen to the first couple of hours of my presentation. During that time, I spoke quite a lot about the lost relationship between astrology and past lives. When I took a break, he came up to me and told me that his people share the same belief. I had entertained no idea of that. Of course, perhaps the most distinguishing mark of the Aboriginal people of Australia from a historical perspective is their utter hermetic isolation from the rest of the world for perhaps 50,000 years prior to the European conquest. Isn't it interesting that they too would accept the cyclicality and continuity of life? Their own hearts told them the same truth that the Buddha saw. In their book of collected quotations about prior lifetimes called Reincarnation and East-West Anthology, Joseph Head and S.L. Cranston, who were cited earlier by Roger Wolger, list the so-called primitive, put that in quotes, so-called primitive peoples who show evidence of accepting the idea of reincarnation. Here is a slightly shortened version. In North America, the Algonquins, the Dakotas, the Hurons, the Iroquois, the Kaloshas, the Mojaves, the Hopi, the Natchez, the Nutkas, the Powhatans, the Tekulas, the Tlingit, the Eskimos, and the Haidas. In Central and South America, the Caribs, the Chiriguanos, Maya and Quiches, Patagonians, Peruvians, Sotals, Popayans, Icanas, and Abasones. In Europe, the Finns, the Laps, the Danes, the Norse, the Icelandic peoples, early Saxons, Celts of Gaul, Wales, England and Ireland, Old Prussians, early Teutonics, Lithuanians. In Africa, the Sukhs of Kenya, the Wanikas, 
the Akik, pardon me, Akikius, the Mandingo, the Edo, the Ibo, the Ues, the Yorubas, the Calabar, the Siena, the Twi, the Zulus, the Bantus, the Barotsa, and the Marave. Fun to say all those words. Again, impressive, long list. If you believe that you have lived before, you may seem slightly eccentric in modern North America or Europe. Keeping perspective, though, even today in those societies, statistically, your minority group is about the size of all the gay folks and fundamentalists combined. <laughs> That's fun to say. You're in a minority, but it's a big minority, maybe a third of the population. And from an anthropological perspective across the millennia and across the spectrum of human cultures, you are probably in a majority if you believe in reincarnation. A last word. My intent in composing this chapter has, in essence, been to make it feel safe to consider reincarnation to be a fact. I'll be operating on that assumption from here on out as we move into exploring and mastering the technical realm of evolutionary astrology. I believe that astrologers in general are no wiser than the cultures in which they are operating. We drink the same water and breathe the same mythic air as everyone else. I believe that the strange rejection of reincarnation in the West for perhaps the past 1,500 years, has ripped astrology from its roots and the universal mysticism of nearly every culture. I feel that it is time to restore those roots, to put the soul and the mystery back into the system. Finally, in playing my own role in the emergence of evolutionary astrology over the past three decades, exploring the techniques I detail in these pages, I have a sense more akin to remembering than to creating. I wonder why. Thank you.